Well, if you have your uh, phone with you by chance, not just your Bible, I want you to get your Bible out and go to John chapter 9. But if you have a, a phone with you, go ahead and text your friends or maybe uh, tweet this, that this is the first time ever that New Hope is streamed live. So it's going out there right now. Tell them to go to Facebook, to New Hope's Facebook page, and they can be, yeah, there you go. So you, you've been able to pick up um, the messages on iTunes. You've been able to watch them afterwards, you know, like on Tuesdays or so. But your friends that are at home right now, maybe you're looking around and you're saying, hey, I don't see so-and-so. Send them a note saying, what are you doing skipping church? And, and, and then, then tell them they don't have to miss it. They can watch it live online right now if they go to New Hope's Facebook page. All right. I'm going to take you into John chapter 9 this morning. But first, what I want to do is take you to 1 Peter 3.15. Here's what we've been doing in the last couple of weeks. I want you to feel like you just stepped into the middle of a movie if you haven't been here in the last few weeks. Five weeks ago, we talked about God's perspective on heaven. And then we talked about God's perspective on hell. And as a result of God's perspective on heaven and God's perspective on hell, we came to an understanding, greater understanding, that my story really matters because heaven and hell hang in the balance. And it's not a joke. God says they're real places. And so as a result, we understand that we've got a story to tell. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a world out there that needs to know about this issue of heaven and hell. So My Story Matters has been this short little three-week series. Today is the last day of the series. And each week, we've used this same anchor verse, 1 Peter 3.15. I want you to see it again, and let's, let me read it to you. It says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, we've understood in the last few weeks that that word hope in the Bible actually can be interchanged with the word confidence. Hope in the Bible is not something that's referred to as, I wish this would happen. We have that concept of the word hope here in the English language in 2016, but that is not a biblical definition of hope. Hope is a sure and certain confidence that what is going to happen is going to happen. It just has not happened yet. So that's a biblical definition for the word hope. So God says you can use the word confidence there. Because you have a confidence in something that's going to happen. But God says, when you talk about it, talk about it with gentleness and reverence. You know what? When you carry those kind of characteristics, that kind of confidence, and that kind of reverence and gentleness with people, people are going to ask you why you believe what you believe. And God says, when that happens, you better be ready to tell your story. That's why your story matters. Today, we get to look at a real-life story as it's kind of fleshed out for us for an individual in John chapter 9 who had to tell his story. So I hope you're in the mood for a story this morning. It's a really good one. Go with me into John chapter 9 in verse 1. And this is talking about Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, when someone's blind from birth, obviously they have no capacity to see. But in the first century, there's a difference in forms of blindness. There's individuals who are blind because of disease, just like today. There's individuals who are blind from injury. And then there's those who are in the most incredible category. They've never seen anything. That's interesting, and we'll go into that in just a minute. But what I want you to notice, first of all, is God is the one who sees him. He has no capacity whatsoever to see God. Man doesn't see God in his fallen state. We have no capacity to see him, but God sees him, and God takes the initiative to intercept because God pursues us, right, church? 
uh, we'll check that again. Okay, because you're going to use your amens a lot today. God pursues us, right? Okay, God pursues us. We don't pursue him in our fallen state. We just don't do it. God says, I chase after you. So we're seeing this guy's blind from birth. And I told you that's way different than being blind through injury. That means this man has never seen anything that you see. He's been cut off from all that you and I take in on a daily basis, confined to a world of utter blackness. And as a result, he's been reduced to begging. He needs more than just better light. He needs more than corrective lenses to fix what's wrong with him. It's not a matter of correcting his vision. Now, if we translate that thought over to spiritual things, spiritually speaking, every single one of us here today are born disabled. We have a disability, and disability is a spiritual blindness according to God's word. We're born disabled. Natural man is unable to see, so we're spiritually blind. Let me back that up from Scripture. God's word says this in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, we're talking here about all of humanity. Solomon was writing this about himself, but all of us are born into darkness. Not only living in a fallen world, but we're born into darkness. That means man needs a savior from the moment of conception in his mother's womb. That's what God's word is saying. It goes one step further. It says we're not only born and spiritually blind, we're dark in our understanding. Ephesians 4.18, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. So if we're dark in our understanding, that means our heart is blind. There's things that we can't see. And because of that condition, we can't even see our need for a Savior. So when we're looking at this blind beggar, this guy is the object of absolute hopelessness. Blind from birth, beyond the reach of man, only God can rescue him. Go with me to verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? Aren't you glad this morning that you don't have to answer the questions that Jesus was asked? He was really throwing some wingers, right? This is a pretty tough question. Now, as I'm picturing this guy, according to the story, it looks like he's in his 20s, probably his early 20s. So we got a 20-something who's got no career and no marriage and no prospects of any kind of a future, and he is absolutely invisible to the community around him. They don't even know that he exists other than the fact that he's the guy who begs for money. People mock him. He's humiliated. And now you see in this story, he's become the subject of a theological discussion, even from the disciples. No one ever said to him, you're important. Your life matters to God. You will be a vital part of his kingdom. He's never heard that. Rather, he's become the subject of a theological dilemma. And the disciples ask a question that's very common among people in the first century. Among the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks, they debated all the time about this issue of reincarnation. That perhaps what we're living with today, the things that we suffer with, they're trying to justify man's suffering. And, and they came to this conclusion, well, it must be they did something wrong in a previous life, and so their soul is returned, and they're being punished in this life for the things they did in a previous life, and they have to keep repeating it over and over and over again. That was a common thought during that period of time. So the disciples are reasoning from a false premise. There, that was a popular thought, but it wasn't accurate. Uh, here's what is accurate. It is true that suffering is ultimately the consequence of sin in general. 
You and I live in a fallen world. You ever have anybody, somebody ask you, why is there so much suffering in the world? If God is good, why do we suffer? Well, because we live in a fallen world. God will restore that world one day, but we live in a fallen world right now. So it's true that sin is ultimately this, this consequence of the decision man made to rebel against God. But it's also true that sometimes illness is the direct result of a specific sin. You only have to look at Miriam in the Old Testament. when That's Moses' sister, by the way. She disobeyed and rebelled against God. God hit her with leprosy instantly. That's a person who got a specific illness because of what she did in rebellion against God. It's also true that sometimes children suffer the consequences of their parents' poor choices. When I served on staff at Youth Haven, Lori and I would commonly see what we call crack babies, kids who were the result of their parents who had made poor decisions. They're suffering the consequences, but it is not biblical to say they're being punished for their parents' decisions. That, that's not consistent with Scripture. Let me take you up on the screen to Deuteronomy 24, 16. God said, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. So those are the common, the common debates that were taking place at that time. But there's a third issue. There's an alternative that the disciples never raise. So Jesus does. There's an alternative answer to the situation. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So big picture. In the midst of his tragedy, God says there's a purpose in the storm that this guy is going through. Now watch what he does not say. Jesus does not say this man was intentionally born blind so that I could perform a miracle in this early part of the first century. In the Greek language, understand there's no punctuations. When the scribes transferred the words over, there were no commas, there were no periods. These were just sentences that stacked one on top of the other. So scribes over the years put punctuation marks in. They, they put commas where they thought they belonged. But watch how the Greek language actually interprets Jesus' statement. You'll see this on the screen. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Stop. That's one complete thought. Here's the second thought. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me. That fits the context much better. Jesus is using the word neither. He's rejecting the thought that there's any personal sin involved. He simply says, this situation is going to be used for God's power, for God's glory to be on display. So the disciples, they're thinking backwards. They're trying to analyze who screwed up here. Who brought this problem? Jesus is thinking forward. We're going to use this to put God on display. You're going through a struggle right now? You got an issue in your life that feels like you're going through some kind of a trauma? God says there's purpose in the midst of what you're going through, even when you can't see it, even when it doesn't make sense to you. There's purposes that can be served even in the midst of your weakness. It may take years for you to discover what that purpose is, but God says, I can use that. I can use it for my kingdom. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's just Jesus simply saying the Holy Spirit isn't here yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Go with me to verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. Sounds really gross, doesn't it, right? Somebody wiped their spit on your face and is mixed with the mud. There's something really peculiar going on here. And I find it profoundly significant, especially for this reason. Jesus has previously healed blind people, but he's never mixed clay before. 
He's touched them with the palm of his hand, or he's spoken healing into their life, and their eyesight has been restored. But we find something really remarkable here. Why is Jesus doing this specifically? Especially when we know making of clay, according to the, the storyline here, is forbidden on the Sabbath day. Well, number one, Jesus said, I'm going to put the display of God's power visible for everyone to see. And I believe he's also testing the faith of this blind beggar. So apparently, Jesus mixes the mud and he smears this clay over the man's eyelids. Is it not also very interesting that you and I are made of clay, we're told? We're made from the dust of the earth. What does Genesis 2.17 say? You'll see it up on the screen. Genesis 2.17, 2.17 specifically, it says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. That's dirt, right? It's what we're all made from. So here's what I'm speculating. Jesus is creating a brand new set of eyes for this man who was born blind. Can I back that up? I believe I can. I believe I can back that up, not only from what we're told here in the storyline, but also from what we understand from science. Verse 1 says, this man is blind from birth. You may not be aware of it, but there's multiple physicians that attend New Hope. Some of those are specialists, and they're eye doctors. So I've spent some time talking with the eye doctors here at the church to help me understand what's going on between the difference of someone who's born blind and someone who comes into blindness through injury. What they explained to me is this. There is a pathway to vision that occurs for a child who, when they're first born as an infant, is very significant to what you can have in your way of your eyesight today. In other words, this. A child at the age of zero, when they're first born, has about 2,200 vision. Over the course of the first six months, their eyesight greatly improves. And during that period of time, there is much communication going on between what your eyes take in and what your brain receives. So you and I, when we look another person in the face, we see the color of their eyes. We see the lenses of their eyes. But what doctors tell me is that there's one million plus neurons that are like telephone lines that are connected from the back of our eyeball to our brain, constantly transmitting information. However, there comes a period of time when that window closes and the information is no longer transmitted. And what your brain has taken in is what your vision is. The window closes somewhere around the age of 12. Meaning, for this individual to have complete darkness throughout the course of his life, there's no chance for him to develop eyesight in any way, shape, or form other than for instantaneous replacement of eyesight. So this clay that Jesus is using has all of a sudden become an irritant in this man's life. God has smeared something on his eyes and God is using this irritant that has entered into his life as an agent to push this man to obey him. You ever get something in your eyes? You ever get a piece of dirt or a particle or maybe a wood chip? You're immediately looking for someone or a mirror so you can find it and remove it. Or you're looking for water because you want to irrigate your eye really, really quickly. You can compare this situation to the irritation of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. God brings things into your life that seem so irritating to you that cause you to respond to the work of God. And using that, he brings us into the activity of God, even though it's irritating. So what seems like a source of irritation is actually the thing that God is using for a closer relationship with him. Watch how Jesus instructs this man. Verse 7, 
Verse 7, part A, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Now, this pool of Siloam is on the opposite end of the city, so this guy's got a journey ahead of him. Somebody's got to guide him. He's either going to stumble his way or somebody's going to walk him to this pool, but he's got to go some distance with this mud on his face. Part B of verse 7 says, so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Check this. Blind from birth. Beyond the help of man, and God intercepts him. Is he not you? Is he not me? He's us. God sees us, blind from birth, unable to help ourselves. He pursues after us, and he intercepts us. See, this guy is you. He's me. And he comes back seeing because he's responding to God's activity in his life. And with God's power... A whole new world has just been opened up to him. Verse 8, it says this, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. You and I are witnesses to the power of God in our life. Whether you know it or not, people are watching you, church. People are observing you just like they're watching this guy. Something has changed in him. Something is different. He's different than other people around him, and they want to know why, what's going on. And understandably, the transformation is so shocking. There's absolute confusion. He's standing right there, yet they're talking about him as though he's in the third person, right? As though he's deaf, too. Like he's got no capacity to speak for himself. And he's shouting, I'm the one, I'm the one, it's me, pay attention. Go with me to verse 10. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? Do you think he has a story to tell? See, his story matters, doesn't it? 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give a story, to give an account for why you believe. This guy's being asked, What's going on in your life? So obviously we've got an amazing situation here, much more remarkable than most of us have ever encountered. He's got a response. Verse 11, he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. People are asking, he's got a story to tell, but honestly, he doesn't have much of a story to tell. Because he doesn't have much understanding yet. But he's faithful to the light that he has. So he's not speculating. He's not suddenly a college professor or a theologian. He's just given a straightforward account. I met Jesus. This is what Jesus did. This is what happened as a result. But I want you to notice something very specific in the midst of his story. In the midst of his response, first and foremost, this always has to be first and foremost for you. Who is the central figure of his story? Jesus, right? Jesus is first and foremost right in the center of what has been done. Here's why I say that. There is a great temptation in 2016. You and I live with it every day. There is a great temptation to soften the truth, to not use the name of Jesus because it's a grenade, right? It ignites all kinds of social debate. And we'd rather just not go there. But this guy with his limited information brings it right to the central part of the story. Even though Jesus' face is already on the wanted posters, 
The leaders of Israel have already said, he's not the guy and don't you dare hang out with him. And if you claim him to be the Messiah, we're going to put you out. Meaning you're going to be excommunicated. There's going to be a price for you to pay if you associate with him and if you stand for the name of Jesus. So there's a great temptation to soften the truth, to avoid the rough path of your testimony. Go forward with me into the story, verse 12. Then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. If you wrote musical scores for Hollywood and Hollywood was going to make this into a movie, what do you think the tone would sound like just after that last line? It was a Sabbath day. Dun, 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 right? Or some screaming violins at that point. Because we know that the Sabbath day being brought into this story really changes the circumstances. These people are unable to comprehend what's gone on, so they're bringing them to the Pharisees. And as much as we use the Pharisees as a whipping post when we talk about the New Testament, understand they were the custodians of the faith in God for the people of Israel. Meaning they had responsibility and their responsibility required them to investigate things like this. So it's natural they're going to bring this guy to them simply because what's happened is unprecedented. That the Pharisees spend so much time examining the situation is evidence for you. It's proof that Jesus did exactly what's been written here. Otherwise, they wouldn't have spent any time on it. Go with me into the interrogation, verse 15. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight and he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. See, he's just repeating what he knows, right? Very, very concise. Here's what Jesus did. Now, from the Pharisees' viewpoint, Jesus broke the law. Jesus is a Sabbath violator, according to them. Not because he violated God's word, not because he violated scripture, but because the Pharisees had written lots of extra laws to go along with God's word. It's man-made laws, things like you will not heal or help or treat people with medicine on the Sabbath day because that's work, unless that person is dying. Well, this guy's not dying because he was born blind, right? There's no risk to his life there. They also had a law that said you may not make clay or dough or knead bread dough in any form on the Sabbath day. Well, Jesus has just made clay. So they're thinking they got him on two violations. Now, Jesus certainly knows the rules of the day. Does Jesus know it's Sabbath day? Yeah, sure. I mean, we know it's Sunday. He knows it's Saturday. He knows it's Shabbat. It's not like he's unaware. So he's dialed into what's going on. So why heal this man on this day when there's blind people all over the city? Could he have not waited until Monday? What's Jesus' motive here? Well, he's already told us in verse 3, he wants to put God on display, but there's something else going on here. Go with me back into the story, verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So you got two camps, right? One camp has come to a conclusion, this man is not from God. They're conceding there's a miracle. There's something amazing that's happened here. But what they're implying is this is the work of Satan. There's no way that God would do this. This man is a Sabbath violator. The opposite position is the sign is so extraordinary. This is something only God can do. Only God can do this. Jesus, therefore, healed the man of the 
blindness. Jesus, therefore, is God. That's the conclusion they come to. So put yourself in this situation. What's staring the Pharisees in the face is literally something that's impossible to ignore. What do you do with this? When a guy is telling his story, and it's his own story, you can't change his story, it's what happened. Verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now watch the progression here, church. First, he's a man. Jesus is the man who put clay on my eyes, told me to go to the pool. Now we're seeing him call him a prophet. There's a progression going on here. Verse 17, what do you say about him? He's openly challenged. Do you confess him or do you deny him? This guy doesn't need a degree in theology to answer this question. He recognizes the source of the power. So he says, he's a prophet. Meaning he's the mouthpiece of God. He's someone who speaks for God. See, his spiritual eyes are opening a little bit wider. Focus is no longer just on the work of a man. The focus is now on the work of God, and he's beginning to discern the magnitude of what's really going on here. Now, the leaders, they don't want to give Jesus the credit, and they certainly don't want to give him the title that belongs to Moses and Noah and Daniel, the title of prophet or Elijah. So they actually have to change the story. They're going to come up with this theory. Well, Jesus plotted the whole thing. He actually switched beggars. Go with me into the next verse. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. Verse 19, and questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see It's beginning to smell like a trial, isn't it, church? Sounds like somebody's being dragged into a courtroom, and they're interrogating the parents. Now, catch this. He has never before ever seen his parents' face. He's never seen his mom or his dad. He's only heard their voices. He's touched their skin. So you're talking about a really intimate moment here. These parents are brought into these fine chambers where their son is standing before those who are the elite of society who are interrogating him. And they immediately begin firing three questions at them. Is this your son? Was he born blind? How does he now see? Now, you would expect the parents to run over and just embrace their child in this moment, but they're put in this situation that's really awkward. Verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. And that he was born blind, but he, how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. It's a really cautious answer. They identify him. Yep, that's our son. <laughs> yeah, he was born blind. But they absolutely evade the last question. He's legally responsible. Let him speak for himself. Now, this guy's been blind his whole life, begging on the streets. Can't his parents at least speak into the situation? What are his parents so afraid of? This story should really help you to appreciate the magnitude of the weight of the government coming down on these individuals who are being asked, what did Jesus do? Because the government has already established you associate yourself with Jesus and you are in danger from us. What are the parents fearing? 
In this case, they're fearing the shunning. And the shunning means they will be excommunicated from society, meaning they will no longer be able to do business. You do sales with the people in the community, your sales are cut off. You're dependent upon interacting with the people of your society, your relatives, your family members, your friends, no longer any interaction, and you certainly won't be able to participate in church life. How do I know that? Well, watch. Go with me to verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Obviously, his parents know who healed him. If they didn't know, they wouldn't have anything to be afraid of. Shunning took place in two forms. There was a 30-day shunning in which you were separated and excommunicated from society. And then there's a lifetime shunning. Now, you may be looking at this and thinking, what's the big deal? They just go find another synagogue to go to. Eh, no, not in the first century. When you're put out, you're put out. You get nothing. Your livelihood has been cut off. You're separated from everything. Now, they know they've got the family on the rope, so what they do is they bring the son back into the courtroom, and they begin asking him questions. Verse 24, so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Wow. Sounds like lines to a song, doesn't it? Right? Amazing Grace. I think John Newton was probably reading some of this when he wrote Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. Absolutely identified by his parents. The Pharisees now have no legitimate reason to deny Jesus. They called the man back into the room, though. Why? Because they're not buying it. Give glory to God. That's a phrase by saying this. Stop lying. We know that this man is a sinner. You're standing witness before God. Tell the truth. What really happened? What they're doing is warning him. Can you imagine going into a courtroom setting where you're called upon to be the defendant and the judge, before you can ever take a seat, says to you, I've already landed on the fact that this guy is guilty, he's a sinner, and we don't want him. What do you say? So the judge is warning this man who has had his eyesight restored. You better say what I'm telling you to say. Take our position. So his response is absolutely amazing. In light of all you've just learned, he says, one thing I do know, it's absolutely undeniable. I'm changed. I'm changed. There's something different about me. See, that's why your story matters, church, because no one can change your story. It's yours. It belongs to you. And as hard as they try, as much as they want to, they can't change his story. His story matters. All the attacks of those who do not yet believe cannot alter the truth. It can't, right, church? All the attacks of those who don't believe can't alter the truth. We know that we know that we know, and that can't be changed. What do we know? We know our Redeemer lives. We know whom we have believed in. Amen? Amen. 
And we know we have passed from death into life. You want to add one more to the list? We know that we once were blind, but now we see because Jesus intercepted us. That's what you're seeing played out here. I once was blind, but now I see. There's a statement every believer can claim. So these guys are stopped dead in their tracks because they can't change his story. Go with me into the next verse, verse 26. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, it's very evident that this man is beginning to grasp the depth of the hatred for Jesus. Watch his response. He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> wow. I love this guy's heart. Can you imagine how intimidating the situation is that he is in? Uh, he obviously expects a negative answer, but he's courageous enough to ask. Just check this. If you've been a beggar your entire life, it means you've been sitting in the dust and the dirt of the streets, and you could only dream of what it would be like to stand in the halls of the social elite, the, the finely trimmed walls inlaid with gold, the fresh bowls of fruit that have been spread around for the leaders of society, their finely tailored clothing. And finally, when you're invited to stand in their presence, of everything that you thought that it was and your eyes now reveal that it's exactly what you thought, it's absolutely beautiful inside those halls. And yet what you hear coming from the mouths of those individuals is so vitriol, so disgusting, that they're so blind that they can't see the very thing you're describing. See, what is partially humorous here when he asks them for an answer, to us it's kind of humorous, but it's also incredibly sad because what you're witnessing here is the most dangerous position a person can take regarding Jesus. To dismiss the work of Jesus Christ and try to attribute it to Satan or to say it's of no avail whatsoever. That is the most dangerous position a person can take. They have just crossed a line. Some people in your life will go to desperate lengths to disprove the work of God in your life. They may even mock you and make fun of you because there's an antagonism within them, openly antagonistic, and no amount of your personal experience can possibly sway their mind. Granted, check me on this. These guys are in a very, very difficult situation. If you're a Pharisee living in the first century, you have a specific rule of thinking in your mind about how God performs and how he acts and what he does. And what they've just witnessed does not match that. So these individuals are being asked to change their framework of their thinking, and it is very, very difficult. They're being asked to surrender their own ideas about who God is and how he acts. There are few things that you and I hold more tightly in our life than what we think about God. That's why I say it is a monumental work of God that he intercepts us when we're living in darkness, complete blindness to who he is, and he reveals himself to us through the work of his Holy Spirit. 
Because you're looking at individuals right here who absolutely have not understood who Jesus is. That you and I do means that God intercepted you. That the Holy Spirit is present in your life. Go with me into verse 28. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Understand, the Pharisees are exploding in this moment in rage. The word reviled is way too soft in the English language. It actually means they're hurling curses at him. It is a really awkward thing when grown men begin to call other grown men names. They only do that for one reason. They know that their position has been defeated. And so they resort to name calling. Just like Michael referred to last week, people on the playground beginning to call names to each other. What we're seeing is what's going on here is the exact same situation. And it's really, really awkward. This guy has never before seen rage. He's heard it. But he's never seen a furrowed brow. He's never seen piercing eyes or prist lips. Someone seething with rage. Now he understands what people were talking about. Verse 30, the man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Absolutely extraordinary. How many people can do what Jesus has done? He's given me new eyeballs. And since God doesn't listen to sinners, we know that this man has to be from God. Jesus has performed something that only God can do. How can he be far from God? Now, we've heard him say, when people asked him before, what happened to you? I went to the pool and I washed my eyes. He's a man. Then we heard him say, I went to the pool and he told me to wash my eyes and the clay came off and I see he's a prophet. Watch how this man transfers from being a person who could only give two, three, four-word sentences into a theological discourse. You think that the Holy Spirit doesn't fill your mouth with the things to say in the moment that you need it? Watch this guy in verse 31. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. For somebody who's been relegated to one-sentence statements, he's just said something profound. Since the beginning of the world, no one had ever had new eyes given to them. What, what do we understand this moment to represent? They've just said, you are his disciple, meaning Jesus. We, we are disciples of Moses. Really, you want to play the Moses card? I'll go back further with you in time than that. I'll go back to the Garden of Eden. Never before in the history of the world has anyone ever received completely new eyes. How do you explain that? Who is this one? Can you say Pharisees who've just been upstaged by a beggar? an uneducated street dude. So they've got one final insult for him. Go with me to verse 34. They answered him, you were entirely born in your sin, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Do you feel the scorn? You were born in sin, and are you teaching us? Do you know who we are? And they put him out. 
meaning he has just been excommunicated. And we're not talking about the 30-day kind. He has identified himself with Jesus Christ. So he's cut off from everything. It is true for them to say that he was born in sin. We are all born in sin, right, church? We are. We are all born in sin. We've already seen evidence of that in Scripture. But he will not die in his sin. Amen? He will not die in his sin. Why? Because we get to see him interact and prove that he is really a follower of Jesus. He was born in sin, but he will not die in sin because Jesus redeems us from the sin that we were born into. Verse 34 says, so they put him out, meaning they barred him from all life in the community. He's completely shunned. Actually, it goes one step further in the Greek language. It says they violently put him out, meaning they probably carried him right out of the building. Now, just check your mind on this. He's waited so long for this moment. If you were born disabled, you long to be like everyone else. My dad was blind in one eye, in, in, in one of his eyes from the age of two forward. And he always longed to have complete eyesight like everyone else. It's just a natural thing. We want to be like everyone else. In this, the greatest moment of his life, when he can finally see birds flap their wings and not just hear it, when he can see what a puff of dust actually looks like, in that moment, when God has rescued him, he finds himself right back outside the temple again, in the very place he started. And he sat for all those years. Why? Because he knows what he knows, what he knows to be true, that Jesus is from God. And he's willing to own it. Can't change his story. It's true. But I love how this ends because God knows what he just went through as well. Go with me to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is an incredibly expensive moment. And I say that specifically for this reason. Society has just robbed him of any hope he had for a future. He's given up everything because he's claimed the name of Jesus and the work of God. So I say this is a really expensive moment. So ask yourself this, does God know in this moment the full weight of what this man has just gone through? Absolutely. God's omniscient. He knows all things, right? Okay. God knows everything. He knows what's been going on. He knows what they just put this guy through. So what does found imply? When we're told that Jesus has been searching for him and finding him, we have to ask ourselves, what does the word found imply? God's pursuing him, right? God knows exactly what this guy is going through, and he comes with a question. He doesn't come and say, you know what? I'm going to tell them to let you back into the temple. I'm going to tell them not to shun you anymore. That's not what he does. He doesn't fix the social setting. He comes with a hard question. Do you believe? This is a call to commitment. Because God knows what's going on in his heart. First he said Jesus is the man. Then he said he's the prophet. He's the, he's the spokesman of God. Now 
He's being asked, do you believe in the Son? He's asking for a personal decision. And it's going to be very specific. So verse 36, he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now remember, he's never seen Jesus' face, right? He's heard his voice. And we know that people that are blind have incredible sense of hearing. So that voice is imprinted on him. He's heard the voice, and he's asking, almost in trepidation, who, who is he that I might believe? Jesus' response, verse 38, verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The ultimate indication of a person who is a believer is doing what you did this morning. It's your breath in my lungs. So I pour out my praise and I worship you. This, this guy worships because he recognizes exactly who Jesus is. And catch this. The worship of Jesus has just replaced everything that he just lost. Society took everything from him, but God came and said, do you believe? And if you believe, you better respond. And he responds by saying, in truth, I believe and I worship. Everything that he desired previously to be accepted by society is completely gone. He has God in this moment. How cool is it that God met him right in the moment of his greatest need when he's back on the street? I'm landing this plane by asking this question. Why does Jesus wait until he's been cast out to reveal who he really is? See, he could have done it much earlier in the day. He could have said, hey, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam, and by the way, I'm the son of God. You're going to be healed and get new eyes. See, he, he never told him that in the story, right? He doesn't tell him until the end. Why does he wait until he's cast out? First, this is a really great reminder of John chapter 6, that Jesus will never cast you out even when society does. John chapter 6, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and he who comes to me, I will in no way cast him out. Huge reminder for us, church, but that's not the biggest one. I'm looking at the progression here of what's happened with this man, and I see a process. The process is this. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is the man. It's not enough to believe that he's a great prophet. Even Islam believes that Jesus was a prophet. You have to confess him as the Son of God, and that's what he's being pressed for. Look with me on the screen at the progression that this man went through very quickly. Verse 11, he answered, he's the man who is called Jesus. Verse 17, he is a prophet. Third was the greatest declaration, and he said, Lord, I believe. See, this man has acted in the light that he had available to him. And the greater his spiritual journey became, even in the course of one day, we've watched him move from darkness into light. Not just physical sight, but spiritual sight. And as his understanding increases, so does his capacity to speak out boldly about God. We watched him go from one or two word descriptors all the way to a theological debate with the most learned of his world. How amazing is our God that he can fill even the mouth of a blind beggar. 
and give him the words to say. So be prepared. When people ask you, why do you have such confidence to give an account for the hope that you have within you, yet with gentleness and reverence? 1 Peter 3.15 is very specific about the fact that you and I have a story to tell. This man, as you've seen in John chapter 9 this morning, his story is your story. Jesus changed you. Amen, church? Jesus changed you, so you have a story to tell, and your story matters. There's a world out there who is confused, and they're not rooted in the Word of God. Your story matters. I'm going to pray for you that way this morning, that as you take on this week, you don't know what's ahead of you, that God will allow you to represent the kingdom well. Let me pray for you right now. Father, I recognize there's there's individuals in this auditorium who may face adversity this week. Perhaps to a measure that we could have never imagined. And it may be because of the name of Jesus and the work of God that we have to take a stand. Father, I pray in in the midst of that moment that you will build courage beyond experience And that you will give a boldness that supersedes our own ability. God, that we would stand proud for you, whether it's in a coffee shop or it's in a boardroom. That we will not let the name of Jesus be diminished, but that we will take a stand. And as a result, God, that you would use that to bring more into the kingdom because we're going to do it with gentleness and we're going to do it with reverence. That's what you've commanded us to do. So I pray for our church. You know what's before us this week. We don't. In the midst of that, God, accomplish your purposes, and we'll give you the glory and the honor and victory. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, Amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.